this evening. If you would also go to page 74 in the back of the blue hymnal and we'll read article 10 of our confession of faith together as we continue to consider Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being himself true and eternal God. And we do so through the Gospel of John in tonight, chapter 10. John 10. Verses 1 through 21. God's word given to his people for our good. A rock of truth in a shifting and changing world. Let's give our attention to its reading. John 10, verse 1. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. And if you would turn to uh, the, the back of the hymnal here, Article 10. Let us read these words of Article 10 together, and then we'll consider uh, the nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Article 10, Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature, but co-essential and co-eternal with the Father, the very image of his substance and the effulgence of his glory, equal unto him in all things. He is the Son of God, not only from the time that he assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as these testimonies, when compared together, teach us. Moses says that God created the world, and St. John says that all things were made by that word which he calls God. The apostle says that God made the world by his Son. Likewise, that God created all things by Jesus Christ. Therefore, it must needs follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ, did exist at that time when all things were created by him. Therefore, the prophet Micah says, His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And the apostle, he hath neither beginning of days nor end of life. He therefore is that true, eternal, and almighty God whom we invoke, worship, and serve. The Lord is my shepherd. What does this mean? Well, what is it that a shepherd does? A shepherd takes care of his sheep. But a shepherd does not just care for his sheep in a general sense, does he? A shepherd takes care of his sheep in every sense. Without the shepherd, the sheep would cease to be. They would not be able to survive. They need him in every way. Jesus speaks of himself as a shepherd here and his followers as sheep. Uh, A sheep may not be the most attractive way to think of yourself, but it is the dependence upon God, which is the operative part of the metaphor here in John 10 and throughout all of Scripture. Sheep do not just follow and obey their shepherd, do they? They follow and obey their shepherd without a second thought. It's almost as if they know Nothing else. And that is the kind of dependence, that is the kind of instinctive obedience that we would want for ourselves with God, who claims to be our shepherd. More than that, Jesus, of course, takes this picture and applies it to himself by calling him the good shepherd. This is a a stunning way of his pointing to his absolute divinity, of his being true God. And he shows it to us by saying that just like our Heavenly Father, Christ can supply all of our needs. He doesn't turn us to any other source, anywhere else. He says, come to me. In Christ, we find all that we need. Since he is our good shepherd, he must be true God himself. As the the true and good shepherd, Jesus does several things. He calls, he leads, he feeds, 
He stays and he saves. He calls, he leads, he feeds, he stays, and he saves. He also calls himself the gate to the sheep pen. So he, he expands the metaphor for a little bit, or these figures of speech that he is using. It's not as if he's trying to be exactly consistent with the picture all of the way through. He expands it to give us different nuances of all of the things that he needs. When he calls himself the gate, he is showing that he is our source of security and sustenance. Security and sustenance. The point is that if Christ fulfills all of the promises of a psalm, like the 23rd psalm, He must be true God. And what we find in John is that that is exactly what he does and who he is. He fulfills Psalm 23. He fulfills all of the Psalms. He fulfills all of God's promises for he is the good shepherd. So first, he calls and he leads. Shepherding was, of course, a huge part of that culture, ancient Near Eastern or ancient Mediterranean culture, a huge part of their culture. A lot of these illustrations or figures of, of speech would have been more understood by those who heard them than we ourselves understand them. So pay attention to the way that Jesus paints this picture for us. He speaks of a sheep pen at first. Sheep pens would have been independently owned if you had enough money, you had enough property to put it on uh, your own land. But most people would not have had that luxury. For most people, if they were shepherding families, they would have kept their sheep in a communal sheep pen, a communal holding place for the sheep. And this would have been guarded by a watchman. That watchman probably would have been hired by all of the families who owned that sheep pen or who used that sheep pen together. They probably all would have partially compensated him in order to save money. So a watchman waits And he stays there and he waits for the right people to come to the gate of the pen because he knows for whom he can open the gate. So if there are people who who come in there with with bad intentions regarding the sheep, are they going to try to go in and get through the watchman? Well, no. If they're trying to steal some sheep or ravage the sheep for whatever reason, they're going to try and climb in by another way. In contrast to what Jesus calls thieves and robbers would be the shepherds or those who actually care for and tend the sheep on a daily basis. So a shepherd would come, the watchman would recognize him, come to this communal holding place for the sheep. And how is it that an owner or a shepherd would keep track of his sheep? Seems like a pretty complicated process, right? If you five or six different flocks of sheep go into the same communal holding pen at night and then the shepherd comes back in the morning and they're all mixed together how does he find his sheep probably was not a lot of marking or tagging in that day it was actually a fairly simple process a shepherd would have distinctive sounds or simply call out with his voice and instantly you would see the sheep that belonged to that shepherd come out distinguish themselves from that massive mixed together flock and come out because they recognize the voice of their shepherd. I experienced something like this in South Africa. I I saw, uh, ran across a a number of shepherds and them tending their flocks and it was amazing to see the, the way in which a sheep knew its shepherd's voice and they followed, recognized it instantly. For this reason, it would have been nearly impossible for a shepherd to come in and steal someone else's sheep. 
As they come and they call out, a sheep is not going to follow the voice it does not recognize and follow the voice that it cannot trust. Why is Jesus speaking about things like thieves and robbers in this communal uh, sheep pen? What has gotten them started on this? Well, in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, Jesus heals a blind man. And and the Pharisees come and they challenge this blind man. And they say, look, you claim that this Jesus did this to you, but we know that that can't be true. So we need you, you need to condemn all the things that Jesus did. And and this man, this formerly blind man, instead of doing that, he, he, he worships Jesus. He challenges the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. The point is that the spirit of John 9 is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, rather than recognizing who Jesus is, recognizing his power, and leading people to him, saying, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. Look at the amazing things he's doing. Listen to his words and follow him. Rather than that, they are trying to lead people astray. It's for that reason that they're showing themselves to be exactly in the same mold as the religious leaders of Israel uh, in the Old Testament, where God would routinely condemn those whom he called the shepherds of Israel. Perhaps the most obvious example of this is Ezekiel chapter 34. And this is a chapter where, where God speaks to those whom he calls shepherds, the shepherds of Israel. He condemns the way that they are conducting themselves because they are failing to lead the people of God in a way that uh, points them in proper obedience or giving proper glory to God or heeding his word, remembering and listening to his promises. We read this in Ezekiel 34. God says to his prophet, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, thus says the the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves... Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Pretty bad. They're failing at being shepherds. They're failing at leading God's people. So Ezekiel goes on. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. The religious leaders of Israel in Ezekiel's day Jesus' day, it was the same story. They were engaging in self-indulgence, rebelling, disobeying God, leading the people of God astray. So God gives a promise in Ezekiel 34, a solution, and this is what he says. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So God promises that one day he will send a shepherd who will be like David. What's what's fascinating here is that uh, the Lord is criticizing the religious leaders of Israel. 
but he uses David as his prototype, as the foil into which uh, this Messiah will be molded. He will be like David. Now, David has already lived and died. This is well after David's day. But the Lord uses David as a pattern. So even here in Ezekiel, we get this glimpse that This shepherd, this central figure who will be the one set over all of God's people. Yes, he will be like David, but he must be greater than David, right? Because David was himself a king and not a priest. So there were all kinds of religious duties that David could not himself perform. But this one who will come, who will be like David, must in some way perform these priestly duties, these religious duties before God so that he might unite God's people in the ways that God prophesies. So Ezekiel goes on to talk in chapter 36, for instance, that there will be this new covenant of peace and that God will sprinkle clean water on his people, that God will give his spirit uh, to his people. Jesus, of course, in in a marvelous way, shows us how he fulfills this in John chapter 3. He's talking to Nicodemus, And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit, showing us that that Jesus is pulling on these threads from Ezekiel to show the way in which he is the one who fulfills these prophecies from Ezekiel and showing that Jesus will be the one who brings a new covenant into effect. And that, of course, culminates in Ezekiel in chapter 37. Chapter 37, the prophet He's in a vision, he's standing over a valley of dry bones, just kind of all thrown together, a big mess uh, of, uh, of human bones. And the prophet prophesies and speaks out, the Lord tells him to, speak out into this valley of dry bones. And he speaks out and, and, and the bones come together and the Lord covers them with, with flesh and with blood and, and he breathes life into them. In other words, whatever this, this shepherd will do, Whatever God will do through this new covenant of peace, it will be life-giving. It will bring the dead back to life. So the image of the shepherd, then, is the perfect way to show that Jesus is fulfilling all of these pictures from Ezekiel. That he is the shepherd who is the one that God appointed to assemble all of God's people together in water and the Spirit. The shepherd in these beginning verses goes to the pen with multiple flocks and he doesn't use the sound effects to gather them. What does he do? The shepherd calls them by name. He calls them by name. In other words, Jesus as the shepherd knows his his sheep. He cares for his sheep. And being the one who fulfills all of these pictures, notice the dependence that we are said to have upon our Savior. We are to be like sheep who follow our shepherd. And that indeed is uh, the picture, right? In uh, modern shepherding, the, the, more common, the more common picture that we have in our minds is that of driving the sheep, right? We think of shepherds going behind the sheep and driving them, perhaps using sheep dogs to help and herd the sheep, going behind them and, and being a little bit rough or brutal with them. But in ancient Near Eastern shepherding, it was different. The shepherd would go before his sheep. And he would lead them out. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of the the master and disciple relationship. The shepherd goes out before the sheep and the sheep follow him. The sheep know the shepherd's voice and they recognize it. So ask yourself tonight, do you know your Savior's voice? Do you follow him? 
Are you committed to following the one who leads us with the tender call of his word? He calls us and he leads us as the good shepherd. He also calls himself the gate. In verse 6, we read that they don't really understand. The people who are listening don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And it's the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus here, going, coming from chapter 9, where there's this disagreement between uh, the formerly blind man and the Pharisees and then Jesus. They don't recognize or they don't understand what Jesus is saying. Why don't they understand Jesus? Because they are not part of his flock. Because they are not his sheep. They do not recognize his voice because he has not called them by their name. So we have an immediate fulfillment of what Jesus is saying. Those who are not my sheep will not recognize my voice. They will not follow me. I will not lead them out because they will not know my voice and they will not trust me. But he goes on to explain what he is saying. And in verses 7 through 10, as I mentioned, we can't think of this as just one particular picture that Jesus is painting. He sort of expands it to give us different nuances. In the first few verses, he is a shepherd, though he never explicitly calls himself a shepherd until he says, I am the good shepherd. But he's obviously showing us the characteristics that he has as the shepherd in the first few verses. Then he calls himself the gate, and then he will go back to the picture of the good shepherd later on in verses 11 through 18. So he says that he is the gate for the sheep. He says this in contrast to the thieves and robbers who come in to steal and to kill and destroy. He says this in order to show that he is the source of security and sustenance for the sheep. While all the others sneak into the pen, Jesus is the one who creates security and sustenance. All those who came before him, he says, are thieves and robbers in verse 9. This does not mean that Jesus is denouncing every single Old Testament hero. It's not what he's doing. Rather, he is denouncing every figure who came before him who tried to usurp the authority and the position that belonged to him alone as the Messiah, as the true shepherd of God's people. That place was being reserved for Christ, for the Messiah. So Jesus makes a claim of exclusivity here. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. This makes us think of John chapter 14, doesn't it? Where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's saying that only he is the source of the kind of safety, the kind of nourishment that we would need if we would have life and have it to the full, as he says in verse 10. Only Jesus can give life and give it to the full. No one else. Words of Great thinker Augustine said this, Let the pagans, the Jews, the heretics say, We lead a good life. If they enter not by the door, what does it avail? A good life only profits if it leads to life eternal. Wonderful thought for us. Indeed, those cannot be said to lead a good life who are either blindly ignorant of or willfully despise the end of good living. No one can hope for eternal life who knows not Jesus Christ, who is the life. And by that door enters the fold. Jesus says that he is the gate. He makes this claim of exclusivity. He's showing us that he is true God. He's claiming divinity for himself. No one but God alone can make these kinds of claims. Who alone but the giver of life could say, Come to me 
as the gate and enter through me so that you may find your true life. All who came before him are thieves and robbers who would try to occupy this place, who would try to usurp uh, the, the privilege of, that belongs only to Jesus, who's the giver of life and the way of life. The gate is where sheep would enter in the evening to go into the pen so they're kept safe. That's why he's a source of security. And they, in the morning, the, the gate would be opened. They would go through that gate and they would go out and find pasture, nourishment, security, and sustenance. Jesus as the gate. We can apply this kind of, uh, uh, these kinds of statements by Jesus to all kinds of areas in our life. We think of the history of Israel. Many bad shepherds who snuck into the pen, used people for their own gain, exploited them so that uh, they might use their position of religious authority for their own life. There have always been people in human history who have, who have done this outside of Israel as well, who abuse power, who exploit the less powerful in order for their own gain. And in order to do that, in order to get people to follow them, to buy into that message that they're saying. What do they have to promise? They have to promise the exact thing that Jesus says he gives. Life and life abundant. In Israel's lust after a king, they look to Saul. You remember in the book of 1 Samuel, they look to Saul and, and, and they want Saul as their king because he's the perfect king. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, powerful in worldly eyes. He's a source of security and safety or so they think. The people of Israel, their heart was set on something other than God as their redeemer, the God who had promised to be with them. They look at Saul and they say, he's the perfect king. We need to set him uh, on the throne. Saul was their salvation. And this is a story that gets repeated over and over and over again in, in human history because of the condition of the human heart. To want to trust things other than Christ. To not believe when he says, I give life and I give it to the full. The human race has shown time and time again it can be so easily led into the traps of earthbound political saviors. Time and time again. What is it that Stalin or Hitler or Mao all promised? They promised heaven on earth. They promised life and life abundant. They promised all of your problems wiped away forever. But they were thieves. They were thieves. They came to steal as they took property from people they came to kill as they killed literally by the tens of millions and they came to destroy all that was good in today's world people look at faith in Christ and and they say that the heaven that Jesus promises is a myth and so isn't it ironic then that that which so many human hearts can strive after utopia heaven on earth this life being perfect isn't it ironic that that is the true myth I was shocked in uh, this past summer. I, I read this and I, I almost thought it must be a joke, but there was a, a relatively meaningless health care vote in the United States Senate. And uh, the next day, the, a member of the party that had, I, I guess, won the day the previous night said this. This is, he, he said, Last night proved once again that there is no anxiety or sadness or fear you feel right now that cannot be cured by political action. It's madness. It's madness. And over against this madness that says your deepest longings can be solved by a vote or by a revolution or by class warfare or by identity politics, there is Jesus. 
He came that we may have life and have it to the full. And only he can fill the deepest longings that we have. Jesus fills those longings, and we know, we know that something is missing. But if we look for it in anything other than Jesus, we end in futile emptiness and in danger. So look to Christ this evening and trust in him. We also read that the good shepherd stays and saves. He stays and he saves. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. What does he mean by good? What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the good shepherd? We perhaps think of shepherding as somewhat of a a gentle job. Um, We're so far removed from that world, but shepherds were not soft and gentle types, nor was their work gentle or, or safe. Shepherds were rough and strong. Their their work was dangerous. It's for this reason that you would always be taking a risk by having a hired hand watch your sheep because if the rubber hit the road, in the moment of trial and and a wolf or a lion or a bear comes, many people would say, well, I'm more than willing to forego my salary so that I can run away and save my own skin. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Why? Because he is a competent shepherd. Because he is good at what he does. Because he is noble. Because he does not shirk his duties. But he always stays with the sheep. A shepherd needed to be willing to face danger if it ever came. And and it probably wasn't very often that a shepherd needed to uh, fight with his bare hands. A bear or a lion or a wolf. But Jesus is not speaking merely of the hypothetical here, is he? Uh, Shepherds perhaps needed to be willing to lay down their life. But Jesus is saying, I am laying down my life. I will lay down my life. See, Jesus knew what being the good shepherd meant. For the only way that God could truly lead us into the green pastures of eternal life would be through the road of redemption that his son would have to walk. The still waters that we already enjoy now and that we will enjoy for eternity, those were not free. Those were not free waters, the still waters of life. They were purchased with the blood of the Lamb of God. He does more than walk through the valley of the shadow of death with us. He puts us to the side and tells us to stay there, and he descends to deeper depths than we ever could imagine. In order for all of these things to be enjoyed, in order for our cup to runneth over, in order for us to understand how he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that he anoints our head with oil. In order for all of these things to be fulfilled, God himself had to come in his own son to make salvation for us. He lays down his life, he says, for the sheep. Notice what sheep he is talking about. He says he lays down his life for his own sheep. Those who know him. Christ paid the price for sin for all those who would believe. Some people call this particular redemption, but it's, it's the only way to properly understand the atonement. Of course, Christ would only pay the price on the cross for those who would be redeemed. But this, of course, does not mean that we are not to preach the gospel freely, to offer salvation to anyone who might believe. There's no There's no contradiction, there's no tension between the Reformed tradition, seeing God's sovereignty and salvation, and the free offer of the gospel. We are called to be faithful and proclaim salvation in Christ and leave the results to God 
And at the last day, we will see that everyone who ever trusted in Christ, we will see the work of God's grace behind that. And God will receive all of the glory. We see that Christ, we see that Christ lays down his life for uh, the sheep. And we entrust the results to God that he might be glorified. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 16. There are other sheep as well that are from other folds. That is not from the fold of Israel, the fold of Judaism, but flocks scattered throughout the world. He will call them out of their flock, bring them into his own and create one flock with one shepherd. Notice that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God under the good shepherd. They are all one. They are together. They joyfully hear and they follow their shepherd. Notice also that Christ highlights for us his his voluntary free will that took him to the cross. He lays it down of his own accord. J.C. Ryle says this, We must never suppose for a moment that our Lord had no power to prevent his sufferings, that he was delivered up to his enemies and crucified because he could not help it. Nothing could be further from the truth than such an idea. The treachery of Jesus, the armed band of priest's servants... The enmity of scribes and Pharisees, the injustice of Pontius Pilate, the crude hands of Roman soldiers, the scourge, the nails, and the spear. All these could not have harmed a hair of our Lord's head unless he had allowed them. Well might he say those remarkable words. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled? And Jesus delights then in being the good shepherd for us. But he delights not only in being the good shepherd for us and in saving us. He delights in glorifying himself and his father. Verse 17 perhaps is the only place in our translation where it's, it's not, it doesn't quite get, uh, get it perfectly. Verse 17 should probably say something more like this. That Jesus lays down his life in order to take it up again. See, he dies so that he might rise. So that he might be glorified with his Father. Let Jesus' desire be your desire. May your desire be to glorify your shepherd king and his Father. Let us lean back our souls on these mighty truths. Let us love Jesus even more, for he calls, he leads, he feeds, he stays, and he saves. So be thankful. A willing Savior, a loving Savior, a Savior who came specially into the world to bring life to us, eternal life. That is just the Savior that we need. If we hear his voice, repent and believe, he is ours. He is our own. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that these words would, would sink down into our hearts, that the Spirit would illumine their meaning to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of Christ and the gospel. We thank you that as the good shepherd, he shows us that he is true God. Father, we thank you that, that uh, you have shown us that there is no other way that we can be reconciled to you. And we know that the cross proves that to us that the the extent to which our our Savior went, the anguish that he underwent, the the resolve that he had to show, shows us that that was the only way to be reconciled to you. 
We thank you for the price he paid. Father, may we love him more and because of our love for him, may we, may we serve him more. May we give you all the glory, the only true God, immortal, invisible, King of the ages. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.